0: You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Critical Turning Points, Philip Edwards will finish with the incarnational tradition and an overview of the critical turning points in church history. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see the future modules coming up And also all the other ministries we have to offer you can also now follow us on social media at arise ministry uk and now over to philip edwards for
1: today's teaching welcome to our fourth and final evening on traditions of the christian faith let's just pray before we start heavenly father we just come again and uh, gather around your word as a group of people that love you and love your word and lord our desire is that through your holy spirit you'll speak into our hearts you'll uh, transform our lives as we listen to you speaking to us and lord uh, teach us and cause us to um, understand what it is you want to convey to us about yourself and the truth of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord, amen. We've been looking at then the rivers of life, as it were, that flow from Christ's heart into the church. We've said it's uh, different aspects, as it were, of the Christian life. We've considered the contemplative life, that of prayer, and seeking to be in the presence of God, constantly praying to him throughout the day, so we're always conscious and aware of him. We spoke of the life of holiness, uh, where we looked at the fact that Christ always responded appropriately in every situation. He knew the will of the Father, he knew the word of God, and so his response was always appropriate. It wasn't always yes, Sometimes it was no, sometimes it was an angry response, but it, was, it would have been God's response. We looked at the charismatic life, a life which uh, uh, we want to be led and moved by the power of the Spirit. We want his direct assistance into our life all the time. And we see how Jesus was led and moved by the Spirit, the charismatic life. We look then at social justice, a life of compassion for all that God has made is world and all of creation. Uh, we're giving ourselves on behalf of others. The evangelical uh, tradition, life lived according to the scriptures. The emphasis is on sharing the gospel of Christ with people that they might respond and receive Jesus and then to live our lives according to God's word. We looked at some of the pitfalls if we get out of balance on some of these things, and we looked at some examples of people from uh, Christian history, not church history, but uh, Christian history, who have been examples to us. We said this life that we live must be a balanced life. Uh, We find ourselves in denominations that that lean uh, towards one thing or towards another, and we can't help that we've been brought up with teaching that's caused us to move in a certain direction with enthusiasm, but we've heard nothing of these other traditions. And yet somehow the Holy Spirit has kept them in the church for the last 2000 years. Sometimes they've been neglected, but the Holy Spirit has come and revived them again through certain people or teachings and brought the truth always back into the church. This week, we're gonna look at the sixth and final tradition the incarnational life of Christ, and in the second half we'll finish off with looking at our ancestry, our family, 2,000 years of family behind us. The bloodstream of the Christian life flows through us, as it were, so we're going to look at some of our ancestors and see how they steered their way through life, uh, how Possible truths were neglected, and now God moved to bring these truths back in again. The incarnational tradition, then. Some people have called this the the sacramental life. Every moment of this life lived with God. Every moment we see God in everything that we do. We don't have uh, the sacred and the secular, we don't divide life in that way. It's all sacred. Everything is sacred. You cannot confine religion to a church or to your prayer closet or uh, to exercises of of prayer or uh, meditation. God is there and you think, I go to God in these places, then I leave God and go somewhere else. The incarnational tradition says, no, you don't. Everything you do, God is there all of the time, and we appreciate that he's in everything that we're doing. That's the thought of what I'm gonna convey to you tonight. Everywhere, we are in God's presence. Not only here, because we're here studying the Bible, but coming here. Uh, At home, before you came, there wasn't a part where God wasn't there with you. So it's the incarnation of life. He has come to dwell in and amongst us all the time. All that happens to us, whether it's good or whether it's bad, uh, useful. It's all useful and beneficial to us. Sometimes the bad things are more beneficial than the good things. We don't like to know that, do we? because God wants to transform us. And he does it nicely, but sometimes it doesn't always work. So he has to do it in an unpleasant way sometimes and we learn a lot quicker, but it's all God moving in all things. All things are instructive to us in life. When things go wrong, don't go, oh, and just fall apart, but just think, hang on, what's happening here? What's going on here? I had an experience on Sunday where I went to this particular church to minister with a particular message, and when I arrived, uh, I wasn't told this, it was a dedication service of a baby. And I thought, ah, why couldn't the pastor of the church have told me, and then I would have you know, prepared something more in keeping with this. So I'm sitting uh, and thinking, do I just wing it and not go with what i had prepared or do i go with what i prepared and maybe let god change it as we go along it's very uncomfortable when that happens that sort of thing Uh, and so you're just open to the lord and uh very interesting because i went along with what i was saying and i decided to leave a part out of this message and I wouldn't say it, but as I'm preaching the message, the Spirit of God says, no, say this part, say it. And so I said it, it wasn't in my notes, but I said this part. And I'm, I'm of course, you're looking all the time, who's listening, who's falling asleep, who's disinterested, what's going on here, you know? So uh, you're doing that all the time. I wonder how the brain works sometimes. it's looking at this, it's thinking ahead, it's making decisions, it's looking at everyone, it's taking everything in, it's realizing that you're getting hot. All these sorts of things are going on at the same time. It's brilliant. The brain is just absolutely brilliant. I said this uh, part, and at the end of the, the service, a couple came to me, and he said, and this happens very rarely, he said, could you explain to me again this part? It was the part that Somehow the spirit had dropped in my heart to just say it. And I thought, that's amazing. So you go home and you, you, you think about things. God's in everything. What appeared to be something that was negative to me ended up being maybe something that was really, really positive. So in the good and in the bad, God is working all the time. It says this in Romans 8 and 28, isn't it? A verse I'm, you, I'm sure you all know very well. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He works in all things. If we love God and we're we're desirous to fulfill his purposes, the part that we have to play, good or bad, we just take it as God. He he might allow us to go through something. He doesn't create evil for us to go into. He doesn't have to. There's enough of that stuff around already. But he steers us through life. And sometimes we have to touch these evil things. But God is with us and guiding us all the time. As I've done each time, I look at Jesus, our example of uh, this particular tradition or stream of the church, the Incarnational. It's right at the heart of the Jesus story. God appearing, then, in bodily form. It's the wonder, isn't it? It's the glory of Christmas. I mean, Christmas has lovely parts to it, with meeting friends and everything else pertaining to it. But the glory of it is that God himself came and entered into human form and lived amongst us. The great God of the universe stooped to take on human form and to dwell amongst us. God came to us as a baby in a manger, in an obscure backwater of civilization. I mean, what a place to come, that God would come into such a place. We're given little information about his growing up years, and that's for good reason. Following his birth event, we're told that in Luke 2 and 40, it said the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. He grew, so he wasn't this perfect Christ being who knew everything as a baby. He knew nothing. He simply grew up. In the things of God, with his family and in the workplace, all those around him, he grew. He he learned what it was to be obedient. Not that he was disobedient, he just learned everything. He was tested and tried in all ways like we were, coming through every time. We learned something about his childhood when um, his, uh, his parents forgot about him, it seems. They went to Jerusalem for one of the feasts and then they left thinking that Jesus was with the whole company of people that they were with and he wasn't there. And so they found out two or three days later, where is this boy? Do you ever think about those two or three days? Where did he sleep? What did he do? I mean, it was a long time for a 12-year-old just to be left in this great big city when he was just a country lad, really. But when they did eventually go back, of course, they found him in the temple place, talking to those uh, teachers of the law. They were a little bit angry. Uh, You see parents like this. They get very upset. And then in their upsetness, the the child... (laughs) suffers to some extent but it's because of their upsetness because of the the fear perhaps that gripped them and so they give him a good telling off but he wasn't rude he couldn't be rude he just said well i was left here and i just got on with the business that i knew i would have to get on with it was almost like a prophetic word really in action about what his calling would be So they took him back to Nazareth. It says in Luke 2 and 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Not that he was disobedient before, but he lived an obedient life. Jesus then grew up under the tutelage of his parents. Joseph is never heard of again in the whole account and the story. He fades into the back background. That's normal. More important characters come to the fore. Uh, He fades into the background. But we can have every confidence that Jesus learned from his father the trade of being a carpenter. Some suggest that carpenter was the building trade Well, he would have done everything possibly that builders would do regarding wood and furniture and and even the, the timbers that were used in buildings. He learned then from his father. He worked in the trade until he was 30. That's how he made provision for his family as the eldest boy, uh, how he looked after his mother, perhaps when Joseph was no longer there, until he started his rabbinical ministry, as we say, probably around the age of 30. I want us to ponder those years that Jesus spent as a carpenter, We're looking at the Incarnational. We're looking at God coming and dwelling amongst us and living in the earth. And if we look at Jesus and see how he lived and moved before he ever went into ministry, before he was ever recognized for who he was, how he lived and moved as an ordinary person, and is that an example to us how we should move and live? He was working class. rolled up his sleeves every morning, went to work, I'm sure, worked hard uh, and provided for the ones that he loved. He learned in this workshop uh, different sites where he was how to live in perfect harmony with his father. Although he was working, uh, the building trade has some negatives about it from a Christian perspective. I'm sure you can all use your imagination. Some of the language is probably not the best language in the world. The men quite have been quite rough and strong, you know, all those sorts of problems. So Jesus wasn't cushioned. He lived amongst people. And in this environment, this working environment, he was focused on his father. He had harmony with his father. He learned how to do this in difficult circumstances. Giving to those who asked him, And not turning away from them. I wonder if he did many freebies. Mm. Some builders do, don't they? They just take compassion on some people and they just say, well, don't worry about that. I just imagine Jesus doing quite a number of freebies. Living in single minded devotion to God and to mankind. He was devoted to his father, but he was also devoted to the people that he met on a daily basis. He learned of a deep, intimate life of prayer and sacrifice in the workplace, you see. Not not in the temple, not in the synagogue, but in the workplace. He lived out his Christian life all the time where he was. He learned to live out the Word of God amongst his peers. Whether they lived it or not, he lived it out. Now, they were all Jews that were around him. They all knew God, and uh, whether they respected and honored God in the way they should have is questionable, but he did. He did the right thing. He wouldn't have stood out that much, apart from he always got it right. He, he, was, he was gracious all the time. He always saw the best in people. He worked this out. It was the incarnation doing to others as he would have them do to him was, I'm sure, one of his uh, motives of life. He learned to live the incarnational life every day, every day. A Christian living in this world. God amongst us. See, we have the Spirit of God in us. And in a sense, we have to do the same. We live with God on a continual daily basis, living with him. It's the same. In his workshop, uh, meeting people and customers in the home with his brothers and his sisters and his mother and father, how he lived his life, he always lived it with God in mind. Jesus didn't suddenly just start saying the things that he said. It wasn't as though 30 years he lived somewhere and then he steps out and he comes out with all this stuff. It's, it's, no, this stuff that he comes out with, he's been living it for 30 years. He's been reading the scriptures. He's growing up as a little Jewish boy, as it were, learning the Torah and all of these things. His life is lived amongst us. He was speaking out the life that he had learned that he had been tested and tried in. It's important to understand the significance of this. If we are not careful, we'll confine Jesus to religious places. And we have to be very careful we don't do that. If we just confine Jesus to stained glass windows or to church services, should act a little bit differently. All of these things, they're not wrong in themselves, but what they do, they conjure up the thought, well, now we're in here, Christ is in here, but you'll be all right, you shout as much as you like in the street because Christ isn't out there. Well, no, if we should be reverent and respectful to Christ in this building, we should be respectful in Christ outside there. We mustn't just think of about him on high altars, or in Bible studies, or in silent retreats, or in our quiet times, in our times of prayer, or Bible reading, revival meetings, or fellowship groups. He's in all these places, but he's everywhere else as well. You think, you know, I've done this for so long, I don't know if I can do this, Philip, what you're asking me, that I can change from just it being just the same He's everywhere. Clearly, there are religious dimensions to Jesus' incarnational living. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath. Of course, he did. And um, he would recite every day, twice a day, a thing called the Shema. It was a verse of scripture from uh, Deuteronomy. It says this Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He would say this as a good Jew twice a day, at the beginning and at the end of a day, constantly doing that. He prayed each day for one hour, it says, in the morning and the evening, like good Jews would have. Every hour? Morning, afternoon and evening? Really? That's a lot of prayer, isn't it? He visited the temple at the appropriate feasts, at least three during the year. So, although he was incarnational and he was amongst us and he lived all the time with God and in the presence of God and aware and conscious of God all the time, there were these special religious parts, but he wasn't different when he went into them and came out of them. They were just remembrances, uh, probably not necessary for him but necessary for others but he entered into all things and was obedient but as good and essential these things are and were the majority of his christian life and the majority of your christian life is not lived in church or bible studies or fellowship groups or in quiet times they're just a few hours in the week our lives are lived all the time in the home, in the workplace, as it were, at play, amongst, with our neighbours, our everyday surroundings, Christ is there all the time, and that's the incarnational attitude that we're supposed to have. We live amongst sinners, representatives of the people of God, and God is with us and in us every second of every moment of every day. It's in this tangible world we most fully express the meaning of incarnational living. Mm. At the sink, making the bed, in the office, mending the car, mowing the grass. He's there all the time. He's there all the time. And we are with him all the time. Jesus lived like this. And he's calling us to do the same. It is in everyday living that we experience the overflow of love and joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit. I think sometimes we expect so much from our churches. Because we live this secular life outside, when we go to church we expect this wonderful spiritual experience to happen, and it doesn't. It doesn't, you see. Why should it? Well, you said, we're all here. Um, God's here. He's there as well. Uh, People have been telling you for years, you can't just come into church and worship if you haven't worshipped outside. You can't come into church and pray if you haven't prayed outside. You can't come into church and heal the sick if you haven't healed the sick outside. There's no difference, is there? We walk with God... Worshipping him, praying, praying for the sick, whether we're in this place called the church or we're in the world, it makes no real difference to us. It's the incarnational life. Is true for Jesus true for us? That's the way it is. He probably reached more people outside the synagogue and temple than he ever did inside. He definitely healed more people outside than he did inside because they wouldn't let him often. Powerful things happened in the marketplace, because God was with him all the time. This is then the incarnational tradition. This every moment, as it were, lived with God. This way of the sacramental living calls us out. All things, we should be all things sacred at all times. It calls us us to uh, make all our waking and our sleeping moments the same. All our working and our playing moments are the same. All our living and loving moments are all in his presence. Whatever we're doing, God is present. And we are present with him all of the time. This life that we have then, it flows from within and it's constant. 24 seven flowing from our lives. We are to live like this, because this is how Jesus lived. He points the way for us to live this way as well. As I do normally at the end of uh, teaching on these particular uh, traditions, I've gone to three um, examples, people who I've read about them, and they've affected me as I've read their lives. John Milton, you might know this name. Um, He wrote a famous piece of work called Paradise Lost. Uh, uh, If you've read it, well, it takes... You have to stick at it a little bit to get it, but he saw some tremendous visions and pictures. And so, um, yeah, uh, all Christians should read... Well, there are some things that all Christians should read, and this is probably one of the things that all Christians should read. You might struggle with it, you might enjoy it, you might not, but you should really read it. Um, And it was written by a man called John Milton. He lived in 1608 to 1674. It says, Milton was one of England's greatest poets, and his life and work followed the same rhythm. During the first period of his life, he became a Puritan, and wrote poetry in Latin, Italian and English. That sounds quite challenging, doesn't it? He was obviously a great student of those languages, not only to just understand them, but then to write poetry in them. He was a, uh, he was a political independent, serving the people of Cornwall. Milton's last period from 1660 this was the last 14 years of his life from 52 to 66 was his greatest even though he was blind he had suffered the death of two wives and two children and he had lost his government position during that final period he wrote the epic poems paradise lost paradise paradise regained and samson's agonistis i haven't read that one but it sounds fascinating, Um, Paradise uh, Lost, I have read. His life was full, you see. He wasn't a minister at all, but his life was full. He lived his life, uh, the incarnational life with Christ, constantly in his life. Another person I'm sure that you've heard of and maybe read something about, I picked on uh, James Hudson Taylor, 1832 to 1905. James Hudson Taylor's grandparents were influenced by John Wesley. His father had a deep concern for the spiritual needs in China and his mother prayed unceasingly. That's always a dangerous thing, isn't it, when your mother prays unceasingly. That must be really scary for kids. By the age of five, Taylor had indicated an interest in being a missionary to China. I think thanks to his um, mum and dad. And though with frail health, he studied medicine, theology, Latin and Greek as a young man. Upon arrival in China, he adopted local customs and dress and worked tirelessly to enculturate the gospel into Chinese life. Apparently he went to China as a typical Western missionary and what he saw he didn't like because they were trying to bring not only the gospel, but the culture, the Western culture. And it was just failing dismally. So he came home quite disappointed and then thought, well, I'll just go back and be a Chinaman. And I think he grew his hair and had the, the pigtail and everything at the back and uh, dressed in all the gear and ate all the food, I'm sure. And so in, he wanted to get into the culture of it. He gave himself wholly, uh, see incarnation, just in the way that... God came as Jesus and lived amongst us, and to some wasn't recognisable. Even he did the same thing. He inculturated himself. Then, when he discovered that his uh, sponsors, missionary organisation, were operating on borrowed money, he founded the Interdenominational China Inland Mission, the CIM, with half of its missionaries in China affiliated to the CIM. By the turn of the century. Taylor's contribution to the church in China was immense. Just one man who said, I will live Christ. I will live him on a daily basis. The way I speak, the way I act, the way I walk, the way I live, I will be Christ to these people. The third person is a lady. This is uh, Susanna Wesley, 1669 to 1742. Susanna was one of 25 children born to Dr. Samuel Aynesley on the 20th of January, 1669. Twenty-five children. Oh, Lord. She had 19 children herself in a span of 20 years. Nine of these children did not survive infancy, but the remaining seven girls and three boys Receive loving care as Susanna's education as Susanna educated them in a home school environment. Susanna was completely immersed in the detail of daily life, finding God in the details and serving God through these same details. Susanna represented the millions of people who have learned to do ordinary things with the perception of their. Uh, enormous value. Susanna was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the revivalist of the 18th century and founder of Methodism. See, another woman who prayed, probably prayed constantly for her kids. Everything she did, all of her life, I mean, you haven't got a lot of spare time, have you, with 19 kids, I shouldn't think. And her poor mum didn't have a lot of spare time with 25 kids. A lot never survived, I appreciate that in those days. But still, to have 10 kids, and, and then to have to do everything and to educate them and do everything. And yet she saw, you can read a lot more about this precious woman, just her whole life was uh, just lived with God constantly. She saw God in everything, worked with God in everything, uh, just read him as he showed the thing, just phenomenal. There's always perils. If you go too far with any of these traditions, you've become unbalanced as I've pointed out previously. The first uh, problem with this one is idolatry. If we recognize that God is made manifest to us throughout the created universe, which is what we're saying, he's in everything, he's everywhere, we can see him everywhere, we identify God with the universe, then in turn we worship the universe. That's a danger. We end up worshiping what we see. The universe is sacred, but it is not God. We must ask, what does it signify to us about God? We can see God in it, but it isn't God. We have to take that step back. This book is sacred, but we must never make it an idol in our lives. I remember once I was, I forget where I was, it was either Africa or India, I can't remember. But I sat, I sat on a chair, and I, I, I put the Bible on the floor next to me. Uh, it was just seemed a sensible thing to do. I was scolded terribly. And said, oh, well, yeah. And I thought, all right, oh, sorry, I didn't realize it was such an offense. To some extent, they idolized the Bible. See, it's the most valuable thing that I possess apart from my wife. Yeah, material thing. Most valuable material thing like this that, that, that I possess in the world. But if I never open the pages, it's not worth a penny. It's worth nothing. It's worth absolutely nothing. It's only as I open it and read it and these words become living and active within me, is it the most valuable thing in the world. So I understand it's sacred but you get at the point I'm driving at. I don't worship this thing. The words the words must come off the page to me. So anyway, I didn't want to offend these people. I mean, they've never listened to me, or I don't know, what. I've so offended them they didn't care what I said anymore. But anyway, I did pick it up quickly, and uh, I did what they said. Often, um, not realising God is in everything and everywhere, we talk to people and we say, "I want you to come to my church, uh, hoping that perhaps some they'll catch something of God, or maybe someone will explain." No, no, you go out there and tell them about Jesus. Is that I don't know what to say? Well, it might be better than the sermon, actually. Okay because if I think my sermon could have been a little bit better tailor-made for my congregation on Sunday okay so they're people you've met you're the living word of God in front of them they haven't got to come to your church and go through some ritual to meet God and we must be very careful about that we can then do meet God anywhere and everywhere and he wants us to take him with him. We take people to church so they can learn more and can be helped along the path, really, uh, that they're walking on. What can we do to practice this uh, incarnational tradition then? Well, we start by recognising that God is in everything. Everything. And he's interested in everything. The brushing of your teeth you get into bed, how long you sleep, when you get up in the morning, he's there all the time, constantly in our lives, as we go to do work, as we rest, as we play. I remember playing rugby, I would always go and pray and say, Lord, please don't let them beat me up this week. Okay. So, no, just that I would, I would play for his glory, that I would, I would play well, I didn't always pray to win because that's ridiculous. That's just not going to happen. But uh, nice to win now and again, Lord. Uh, But I remember that. So uh, we recognize him in every activity of our life, whatever we're doing, uh, in home, work, study, play. All work that we do, everything we do, is a spiritual activity. If If God owns the whole world, if you do anything that's positive within this world, your blessing the world that God has created. So all work then is a spiritual activity. When you garden, when you sweep up leaves, when you do housework, when you do crafts, uh, pick up litter, it's all significant. It isn't secular, it all has a spiritual content because God is in everything and he's for everything. Our marriage is one flesh with God. Our family is a religious institution. Our family table is the centre or the altar in the home. It was always a good tradition with our children every evening to gather for a meal around the table. It just seemed the right thing to do. It was like the family altar. It was where we were. We never did anything particularly spiritual apart from eating but I've convinced you that everything is spiritual so even eating uh, is spiritual you'll be pleased to know Our homes become places of shared life a sacred place They become a school, a hospital, a workshop, it becomes our church, it becomes a club, a place of hospitality, a place for prayer that's the home it's like a a sacred place because it's all sacred and sacred things go on there husband and wife family it's all god is in the midst of all this stuff it isn't secular at all that's it the the tradition where we appreciate that god has come to live and move with us constantly in our lives. And we live all of our life acknowledging his presence. Thank you. In this last talk of uh, traditions, we're going to look uh, at the history of the church. And uh, from that, it could go into great detail, and I don't want to over-explain things, but you'll see how the, the church takes different... Uh, twists and turns over the thousand couple of thousand years how certain things obviously would have got neglected or even uh, crushed by whatever it was going through at the time political reasons or or whatever and how the spirit of God comes and revives this thing again or protects truth that, that those in the church are trying to suppress or even take from the church so it's it's Two thousand years of history, and it's amazing that we have all this truth that we've been looking at over these last four weeks. It's all there, and we can read it, and it's available to us. So, um, the the critical turning points then in church history uh, that that cause these things to either be neglected or to be revived. The, the different traditions that we've looked at—they all should flow together through the church, and they have. Like I said, some have been lost, only to be retrieved again by the Spirit. They're flowing, as it were, in um, a movement, which is the movement of Christ Himself through two thousand years of history. This, what we have—strange to call it a movement but it's a person, that's what makes it so living and real and powerful and wonderful. It's not an ism or an ideology or a thought or a plan or a way of doing something. It's a person, it's a person, and that's what makes it so different and wonderful. The way we can understand these different traditions, the best way I can understand them anyway, it's the contours and shape of the church. And we need to appreciate how broad it is. Sometimes in our denominations or the things that we've been taught, it's, it's very narrow. But as we've been looking at things, the church is a lot broader than our, probably our narrow perspective. It's the totality of Christ throughout history. It is the bride of Christ. Although we may identify with one particular stream, we know something of all the streams flowing through the heart. I'm pretty confident that most of the things I've spoken about, you knew something about. You go, well, this wasn't a complete surprise to me, Philip. Although we don't practice this in our church and we don't do this, I know all about it. I know about it and I do it to a little extent or not as as wide as you make it out to be, but it's all there. See the wonderful job of the Holy Spirit to bring it all there all the time to us. And it's not as though we're reading, reading all the time. Just a book here and a book there brings this truth to us and we walk with this truth. This bride of Christ then, this movement, this, this person as it were, It spans the centuries. When Christ returns, he will come for a bride. It'll be formed from millions of people, from a vast number of cultures and different periods in history. Isn't it amazing? Standing next to someone, I often think of this. Some someone from the Middle Ages. And their Christianity would have been so different from mine. And yet it's the Bride of Christ. Standing with someone from the first century, it was so different. Their whole way of living and thinking and being, so different. And yet this Christ is alive within us. We form the Bride of Christ. I saw once like an open vision of like it was it was great a great span and and there was you know Sometimes you see these pictures that are made of faces But you don't realize their faces until they expand the thing up and it's made of these, this I could see this wall of millions and millions of faces and mine was there in this 2000 years of history and all the saints that were before Christ even came there was I, just that little speck, and I made up the Bride of Christ. Fascinating. See, we need to see ourselves, uh, the whole picture sometimes. We get locked into here. We can't see the wood for the trees, can we? We're, we're just here, locked in it, but it's so vast and so big. One day, we'll come together, united one people from these vastly different backgrounds when i was writing this i, I couldn't help thinking of uh, martin luther king and his dream Have you ever you must have heard of read the dream delivered on the 28th of august in uh, 1963 at washington dc he said this i have a dream in his address he spoke of a day when all men would be equal Former slaves and former slave owners would be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. There would be freedom and justice for all, where people would not be judged by the colour of their skin, and the black and white children would join hands and play together. As I read that, I thought that's... He had a vision, didn't he, of the church, of the Bride of Christ. I don't know whether he believed that would happen on the earth, um, probably not. He knew it would come when Christ returned and the church stood up. <laughs> We've been divided, haven't we, over the years? Oh, the church has slaughtered itself, slaughtered one another because of opinions and attitudes and thinking. They were so right and others were so wrong. They bitterly fought. God will make us one. It's going to be amazing. We'll be together. We'll be obedient. Not in you must obey, but a willingness to obey. We will be disciplined. We'll be freely, a freely gathered people who know the life and the power of the kingdom of God. A people of cross and crown. There are so many paradoxes in the Word of God. It's sometimes difficult to preach the whole counsel of God. What you mustn't do is try and preach opposites on the same day. You'll get yourself in a mess and everyone else. So if you're going to preach on the cross of Christ, don't do it on the same day you preach on the crown of Christ. Just don't do it. Just just preach on the cross and all the power that you can put into it, and the next Sunday then preach on the crown. Uh, But they're both legitimate. They're opposites, but they're both legitimate. The people who are combining evangelism with social action, they will be both there. They fight now about which is most important. The Lordship of Jesus and the suffering servant What extremes are people buoyed up by the vision of Christ's everlasting rule, not only imminent on the horizon, but some say it's already bursting through. Some say, no, it hasn't burst through. We have to wait. And so, no, it's here. Come on, lay hold of it now. And so the tension exists constantly. Is one true and one false? In some strange way, they're both true. It's not here, and yet it is here. The kingdom now, but not yet. We live with this all the time. On that day, we'll see a rural priest embracing a suburban pastor. We'll see a Catholic monk standing alongside a Baptist evangelist. We'll see a social activist from the urban center of Hong Kong with Pentecostal preachers from the barrios of Sao Paulo weeping together over the spiritually lost and the plight of the poor. Attacking the problem from different perspectives, but really seeking the same answer. There will be labourers from Soweto and landowners from Pretoria, honouring and serving each other out of reverence to Christ. There'll be Hutu and Tutsi, Serb and Croats, Republicans and Unionists, African-Americans and Anglo-Americans, all sharing and caring and loving one another. The sophisticated standing with the simple, the elite standing with the dispossessed, the wealthy standing with the poor. Can you imagine it? It doesn't happen today. We're in our camps, we're in our groups, we're in our class distinctions we're 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 like this all the time church church is supposed to be an example where we can all come together but we can't manage to do that there's so much of this world over us and in us you know when i know when i'm sitting next to someone who's quite well off i just it's different that won't be the case or someone who is not as smart as me, or I don't think they are, or they haven't had the same education as me. You know it. There's all these pecking orders I spoke about the other week. The wealthy and the poor a people from every race and nation and tongue and stratum of society joining hearts and hands and minds and voices, and they will be declaring hallelujah, For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. We will all be the same. All different and yet the same. Every face that I saw in that mural, as it were, We will all be the same, clothed in white, the Bride of Christ, the rich and the poor, the right and the left, all together, the Bride of Christ. I want to give you a brief overview of your ancestry, your family, as it were, your bloodline, because we are all one family. a sweep, then, of church history. I hope it'll give you a grid through which we can evaluate the faith streams we have studied. Today, after 2,000 years, Christianity is the faith of a third of the world's population. Isn't that amazing? You say, well, not much is going on here but in other places of the world, you see. Christ died for the world. He didn't die for the UK and the West. He died for the world. And we've had tremendous opportunities in the past where God has had tremendous ingatherings in the West and in, in Europe, but now it seems that the other nations of the world are being gathered in at this time in their hundreds of thousands. From a handful of fishermen, tax collectors and farmers, in an obscure province in Judah, our faith has spread over the globe to claim the loyalty of over 2,000 million people at this moment in time. Is that possible, this book that you read, that this man, Christ, with his rabble of guys, young men, teenagers, maybe in their early twenties, no more than that, have turned the world upside down through the power of the Spirit in their lives. The history of the church, it will be brief. I'm going to give you 2,000 years in about two minutes. No, a bit longer than two minutes, but... It helps us to understand how change and pressure upon the church led to truth being neglected and why different traditions came to the fore. Let's go then. I've got seven periods over the 2,000 years. The first is the first 300 years from 70 to 312. It was one of Christian universal church. There was... They called it the Catholic Church, not, but they meant universal in that word, Catholic, when I use it. There was one church. It wasn't all divisions and streams, just one. The truth about Christ, it spread really rapidly, didn't it, at first, throughout that whole Mediterranean world. And we read there how the bishops guarded the truth, that the apostles had left, even as they died. They kept hold of it and they they held it. They knew how precious the word of God was. And yet at that same time, there was tremendous persecution from the Roman Empire. So with all the persecution and that, and their desire to hold the truth together, the church remained as one for about 300 years. From 312 to 590, Christianity became the state religion under Uh, Emperor Constantine. And before the end of the 4th century, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Bad move. You'd have thought, good move. That was a bad move. Because everything got diluted. The truth that they held on to these bishops so carefully, it was being diluted now. People were putting positions in the church... Who weren't even born again had no understanding of the scriptures or God. It was all payoffs. This led to uh, monasticism, where the revered hermits took the truth and, and went and hid, as it were, and, and hid themselves away in monasteries, holding on to the truth, because out there in the world, It was just being polluted constantly, and so they held on to the truth. So already you can see one of the traditions, why it was what it was, the reason for the birthing of this tradition, as it were, that flowed from Christ itself. In the Middle Ages, 590 to 1517, the church divided into two. We had Orthodoxy in the East and the Roman Catholic Church in the West. It split as it were, completely, into two. At the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, this is what affects us mostly, the Pope stepped in and proceeded to build the medieval church upon Rome's bygone empire. See, their image was of Rome and its power. And the Pope says, this is what we will have. We will will fashion ourselves. On the Roman Empire, and we will conquer the whole world. Between 1517, though and 1648, Reformation came to the church through Martin Luther and a number of other influential men in European countries. Protestantism mobilized the Lutheran, the Reformed, the Anglican and the Anabaptist movements. This shattered the traditional Christian unity of Europe and denominations arose. It was great that it was all one, but then it was polluted, and so it could no longer be one. And so it shattered into many, many parts and denominations. Those four were the primary ones, but they shattered and broke again, didn't they? Many times, many times, until we have the hundreds, the thousands of Christians denominations that we have today. Modern nations could now treat the church as a voluntary society, separate from the state. See, to this point, the state and the church, they were together. It was though the church passed the laws, but now it was separate completely. Again, is that what God wanted? Well, if it's a polluted state, yes, he does. He wants to separate it. 1648 to 1789. It's called the age of revival and reason. Man no longer needed God. He could make it on his own. He was so clever. He had learned a lot, he had progressed. He didn't really need God. God remained a matter of personal choice. It's fine if you want to believe it, it's good, but it's just a personal choice. To counter this, there was a number of evangelical revivals, chiefly Pietism, Methodism, and the Great Awakenings in the 1600s and 1700s. (coughs) Tremendous moves of God. By preaching and personal conversion, evangelicals tried to restore God to public life. That's when the evangelical message first appeared. It wasn't before this. We know nothing else apart from the evangelical message. You must be born again. This is a personal decision. This never was before this time. A nation was Christian. It never spoke in those terms. It was Christian. The world was Christian. What was born into a Christian world, and the assumption was we were just Christians. But it has so broken down and been dissolved, as it were, it became a personal choice. But you say, Philip, surely it was always a personal choice. Yes, it was, but the personal choice wasn't there because everyone was a Christian, so you were a Christian. You assumed that. You were born into something that was Christian because we're not today. It's quite different. 1789 to 1914, we see the rise of secularism. The gospel then at that stage, it was being pressurised in the West and so we had a great missionary thrust and the gospel was taken to every corner of the world. Tremendous missionary enterprise and what happened in the West, there was a, a whole host of social ministries rose up at that time. Because of the industrial revolution and everything that was happening in, uh, in the cities and the depravity in the cities, the Christians rose up with a social gospel. As well. Many societies started at that time. This then brings us to the present time. This is the age of ideologies Nazism, communism, and democracy. They claimed the loyalty of secular people that led to two global wars in an attempt to establish supremacy. In Europe, Britain was the only democracy left of all the other nations in Europe. When no simple ideology prevailed, a cold war of coexistence settled upon once Christian nations. After World War II, new Christian leadership emerged in the developing world. As Christianity falls away in Europe and North America, the gospel flourishes we know in Africa in Latin America and in places in Asia people are being won for Christ in their tens and hundreds of thousands by the year 2030 the largest Christian nation in the world will be China without a shadow <coughs> of a doubt There are probably already 100 million Christians in China today. That is a conservative estimate. It is there. And we're thinking, we want it here. Of course we want it here. But God is saving the whole world. The King of Kings does not come to the UK. The King of Kings does not come to Europe. He doesn't come to the Western nations. He comes to the whole world. We want a revival. We want him to come again, to visit our land in the same way he's visiting those lands. But at this moment, as we look, we see him sweeping thousands into the kingdom, constantly, day after day, but not here, not in our land. Oh, Philip, you're so depressing at times. Are we without hope? Are we without hope? Christians can hope. We can always hope because faith always reaches beyond earthly circumstances. We look at the circumstances in the world and we know that doesn't determine Christ and the work of God. It doesn't determine it. The Christian's confidence is not in an ideology or a movement. It's in a person that's what makes it so wonderful and so possible it's about a person no other person in recorded history has influenced more people in as many conditions over such a long time as Jesus Christ has the shades and tones of his image They seem to shift with the needs of the people. Did you realize that as you look through history? First, the Jewish Messiah for the remnant who were faithful Jews, they they was the first Christ that they saw, much different from the Christ that we know. The wisdom of the Greek apologists, that was Christ with his wisdom they sought wisdom didn't they intellectuals arguing discussing but Christ came and baffled them all he wasn't their messiah but he baffled them the cosmic king of the imperial church when I look at some of that artistry of those years past how he was so on the throne and majestic and over the whole world that's how they painted him that's how they saw him the cosmic king he was the heavenly logos of the orthodox church he was the world ruler of the papal court he was the monastic model of the apostolic poverty and he was the personal savior of the evangelical revivalist He sees everything. He's everything. He can pop up in any time in history. No matter how advanced we are or backward we are, Christ can emerge, and it's as though he changes, but he never changes. He is who he is, and how people create him and paint him and want him. He's Christ, the man for every season, for every time truly is a man for all time. In the day when many regard him as irrelevant, a relic or a quickly discarded past, church history provides a quiet testimony of Christ constantly. Christ will not disappear. He can be suppressed, as it were, ignored, cast aside, passed laws over, made illegal, but he's quietly there. He's not coming in force and power and arrogance, and, but he's constantly there. With all the oppression, as I said, in China, he's there working through in the people's lives. 100 million people we know put their faith in christ today in china at least his title may change but his truth endures for all generations he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father a prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Aren't you glad that you're on that mural in the wall, you're there? with the billions, billions of other people that are there. And Christ, this quiet man, the man who, when they insulted him, simply turned the other cheek. The man who offered up his hands and feet to be hung and slaughtered and killed is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is our Saviour and our God he is so broad so vast so immense so wonderful so glorious he just is he just is and he stooped down to save you and to call you his own what a privilege privileged people you are when we live in such a dark place in the world how privileged you are that you know the king And the broadness of his love and the magnificence of his power lord we thank you thank you for saving us thank you for showing us what you're really like and we can't wait to live with you forever and ever and ever amen
0: you've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation to the ministry. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.